Hello, and welcome to this episode of Engineering a Better World, a society, technology and policy podcast from The House magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. I'm your host, John Elledge. How can technology lead the fight against climate change? In this series, from the heart of Westminster, the House magazine and the OAT discuss with parliamentarians and industry experts how technology and engineering can provide policy solutions to our changing world. The UK government has set itself a target that the country will reach net zero by 2050. But that's not going to happen without a skilled workforce. Now, more than ever, employers are looking at how they can train their existing workers to help us to reach that target. They're also using initiatives such as green apprenticeships to encourage young people from STEM backgrounds through the door. In this episode of Engineering a Better World, we'll explore how the UK can lead the way in delivering the skills required to make Near Zero happen. We'll start for a panel discussion with some leading thinkers, but stay tuned because after that, I'll also be interviewing Alex Burkhardt, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Skills. And with that, on with the show. So on this episode, we have Siobhan Bailey, who was elected Tory MP for Stroud in 2019. She speaks frequently on the topic of green skills and the green industrial revolution. So it's so often, in fact, that she was asked to discuss these from the main stage of this year's Tory conference. Siobhan, welcome. Uh, hello, how are you? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We also have with us the two co-chairs of the IET's Education and Skills Policy Panel, Yvonne Baker and Dr. Graham Harris. Thank you both for joining us. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you very much. Hi, good afternoon. Good to be here. So, Siobhan, if we go to you first, we're recording this shortly after the end of end of COP26. What, you, what were your big takeaways of, of the conference? I think there's a huge amount of progress made. It was clearly an awful lot of work. And I was pleased to see in Parliament yesterday resounding praise for the COP president, Alok Sharma, his team and the negotiators. I think speaking to the public over the last few weeks, there is no illusions that trying to get even two countries to agree on something is tough. But getting nearly 200 countries countries to really focus on what's needed for the climate and the planet was always going to be difficult but yeah we, we you know we've kept the 1.5 alive and the work continues. Everyone maybe we go to you next what do you what did you make of the the COP26 agenda? I think clearly it's been an event that has catalyzed and encouraged a lot of enthusiasm and engagement particularly of young people with the whole issue of sustainability which I can say as a, you know, as originally a chemical engineer myself, it's interesting because sustainability has always been a massive part of engineering. You're always trying to conserve energy. You're always trying to conserve mass, you know, reduce wastage. So I think the big thing for me is ensuring that for those of us engaged in education skills and particularly engineering and technology education and skills, making sure that we capitalise on that to really get the message home to young people, to schools and colleges and to their families and other people who influence them. But engineering and technology is a is going to be crucial to the solution to these challenges. It's going to be absolutely fundamental. And actually their engagement in that can only be a good thing. Graham, what's your what was your take on COP26? Yeah, I, I think clearly it's been a, a very challenging event to reach a uh, mutually beneficial uh, solution for for the globe, but let, let's face it, we we need to act. You know, some people argue 
it's not gone far enough and others will argue it's it's gone too far but striving to achieve a one and a half degree increase is is something that's critical to our future existence and future enjoyment of the of this amazing planet and really just wanted to reflect on Yvonne's comments engineers are at the heart of working to fix and uh, you know reduce that continued growth in in temperature and and actually recognizing you know the the change in climate and impact and and its impact on our day-to-day lives with flooding and and earthquakes and and everything else you know these are all challenges for engineers to help work together on a global basis you know that really is the opportunity for me is as an engineer Whilst I'm always interested in helping myself, helping my business, helping my country, this is now time for global engineers to, to come together and, and, and to help fix and come up with solutions. So Graham mentioned flooding there, and I think that is when we think about the green agenda, that is often where the mind goes. And I think one of the more, more striking images to come out of COP26 was the, the foreign minister of uh, was it Tuvalu standing up to his knees in water to kind of communicate quite how much trouble Pacific Island nations are in. But because we think about those more emotive things, we sometimes ignore some of the more practical ones and things like you know, the skills agenda is, is a huge part of getting to net zero, isn't it? Siobhan, it's been a big, it's been a big topic for, for you as a politician. What is it that kind of made it so? I mean, it's huge. If we do not have the people to implement these new technologies and exactly what Yvonne and Graham are talking about, just how important it is um, to protect our planet, if the, if the skills are not there and if we're not thinking ahead and planning for training people up, we are in real difficulties in this country. I mean, so there's a two-pronged issue. The first is the people that are already working in fossil fuel industries, so massive, massive industries, huge number of jobs. We know that we're trying to phase those out, that everyone's focused on that. So where do those people go? How do we make sure that they can keep feeding their kids and and keep engaged in their jobs? And I've been really pleased to see big companies like BP thinking about the transition. Uh, There's a a big work program for the North Sea transition and making sure that those reskilling opportunities are there. And then the second part is a a challenge to reskill those who work in the sort of the more domestic changes that we need to make so that the the retrofitting so we've got energy efficient homes electric vehicles that we are all moving towards but we know that there's only five percent of mechanics at the moment are actually skilled up to, uh, to to fix those cars so all of that has to come together and we need to enthuse young people completely right but also make sure that people understand that this is a lifelong learning approach and you can retrain and reskill at any time and thankfully government has put its money's where its mouth is we've got a brand new skills bill going through the house we did the second reading yesterday i mean just to put it in context last time this country had a skills strategy coal use for electricity was at 40 percent so it's massively overdue and I, i think it's a really good piece of work forgive me i'm going to speak like a recovering education journalist here but it strikes me that the fact that we don't we don't talk enough about the kind of skills agenda here maybe fits in with the fact that you know as a nation we kind of ignore the work that places like FE colleges do. We kind of see education as a matter of school and university while ignoring those those more professional skills. I mean, Graham, do you think that is part of the picture of why why this is maybe not as high up the agenda as it should be? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I really wanted to deepen on, on Siobhan's commentary there because because actually, you know, when when I look at 
at what we need in terms of engineers today. We need engineers at every level. We need technician engineers, we need the incorporated engineers, and we need the chartered engineers. Look at the challenges we have in installing low carbon heating, installing charging points, designing new charging points, smart energy meters, and then actually making use of, of that with uh, connected grid and then developing carbon capture. We, we need engineering at every, every level. And I think, you, you know, your question there about FE colleges is, is exactly right, because actually FE colleges can help deliver those engineers and the upskilling and reskilling of engineers at all those levels. FE colleges are, are probably our best hope for actually increasing our skills availability and reskilling many people into rewarding both financially and and you know from an excitement and and playing a part in a sustainable future you know it re- we really can excite other people into engineering careers to to really help save the planet i mean Yvonne, at the most basic level do you think people especially young people are aware of the opportunities there are in this kind of work i think the awareness is growing i think there's still an awful lot of work to do you know, we often quote, as adults, we often quote that uh, fact that most young people, certainly at primary school level, even leaving secondary school at secondary school level, they're heading into jobs that we don't yet even know exists. I mean, certainly when I was at school, whoever heard of anything called a, a web designer or, a, you know, you would have thought that was something to do with spiders, wouldn't you? And and yet we've got all those kinds of things. So I think there's an awful lot to do. I think there's also an awful lot to do about just exciting young people about the possibilities of using science and maths and technology and bringing together arts and creativity and, and sort of really using their huge imaginations to start thinking about what are some of the really creative solutions to some of these problems and just really exploring the possibilities through that. I think also if we get better at that, and certainly we're working a lot now, you know, as as the IET and also in my job with STEM learning, we're working more and more with primary schools and even down to early years. And actually, you know, sort of working with teachers and helping teachers get more confident and helping them engage children right from early years you're just showing them what the possibilities are and that will really help with the diversity of people going into engineering and technology as well because right from the earliest stages you're helping young people of all backgrounds girls boys you know from all um, possible backgrounds see that science and engineering is something that they can do something that has got possibilities for them Another one of the issues we sometimes run into with the, the skills debate in this country is it's there's often a bit of buck passing going on about who is responsible for actually making sure we have the skills for the future, whether it's the government or employers or, or individuals come to that. Siobhan, what's your take on, on what role each of those groups has to play? I think your previous point is really relevant, actually. When I was growing up, I can't see my colleagues here. They sound gloriously young and gorgeous. But when I was growing up and going into sort of work in the 90s and noughties, I didn't go to uni. But the mantra then, if you remember, was education, 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 get at least 50% of children into university. And not a lot of action or effort or government narrative about the rest of young people. And what happened then, you saw an under 
underinvestment, uh, sort of a real, people were not really interested in technical education and colleges. And I was trying to make the point the other day, that if we think to the pandemic, all the sort of the, the jobs and the people we miss the most during the lockdowns, they were beauticians, hairdressers, they're brickies, they are the drivers. A lot of those a lot of those people are so fundamental to our lives. We're all college trained and further education trained. So I think there is a role for government in setting the scene and making sure that those skilled jobs are equally valued and equally as important and the colleges are getting the investment to train. So I think that is the government's role and the skills bill is doing that and it's it's doing quite an important job. And then for employers, I think working more closely with colleges and universities as well to sort of let local areas and it should be localized as well because you know in Stroud and Gloucestershire it's quite different to what London people need so we need to think about what the employers need and what they need from our young people and people that are retraining to go into jobs and be useful immediately um, for our local communities and then for schools I mean I just really try hard to get all young people parents and teachers really talking to kids about the fact that you know lying down on motorways and being sort of protesters is, is is one thing but actually learning your maths and your science and making sure that you are the you are going to grow up to to solve problems and, and be the climate scientists of the future is absolutely massive so I think giving the confidence to schools and parents to be talking to children in those terms at all be you know be conservationists we've got brilliant WWT Slimbridge in my patch they're amazing amazing conservationists and I think giving all of those options as part of this one wonderful push that we're all uh, doing to, to, to improve things for our, our future generations. I think everyone's got a part to play. Graham, what's your take on the, the appropriate division of labour between government, private sector and general public on this one? I think clearly the employers have a, have a duty, a duty to recognise where future staff are going to come from, a duty to their existing staff and a duty to shareholders to, to ensure that they, they can continue to exist. The future pipeline of skills for, for this amazing country is from schools and colleges and universities. And I think it's it's incumbent on employers to help help support STEM ambassadors and, and the like that their staff can go and enthuse children in school. But I think also we, we really need to educate teachers I don't mean that in a in a negative context. It's more about awareness. What are jobs in engineering, science and mathematics? What are they actually? Having teachers spend short periods of time and tours and visits without children to employers to actually see what a wealth of career as an engineer can be and and not just that uh, an engineer is a car mechanic or an engineer is a an electrical installer that, uh, you know, it, spe- speaking to Yvonne here, an engineer is a chemical engineer. What does that involve? The material science, the, the production of every product that we we pour down the sink or, or clean the, the shower with. All these are chemical engineering jobs. And I think we have a, a responsibility as employers to help educate that. Clearly, there's a role for government. And I think government need to help with FE in particular. I think it's an under underutilized opportunity to date. And it's something that, that could be easily scaled up to help deliver the skills gaps that we have. I mean, we have over the last few years moved towards 
an assumption that paying for education and training is is more a responsibility for the individual than than for the government, perhaps. Yvonne, do you think that's a barrier to the, the kind of changes that we're we're hoping to make here? It, it doesn't seem to be a barrier to young people progressing to university to study STEM subjects, for example. I mean, I know talking, um, sort of informally talking to a number of universities recently, they're certainly seeing really positive numbers of young people coming forward to study STEM subjects, including areas that previously haven't been so sort of thriving so much, like computer science. And also apprenticeships can be a great route for young people to actually get some really superb technical and, and engineering sort of training and sort of enter into those roles obviously without the sort of the student grants and things like that certainly in the work that I do uh, with STEM learning some of the most amazing role models are young people who've come through the apprenticeship and technician route as engineers and they you know they've then gone through their degree and been paid to do their degree by their employer and they can absolutely you know they can inspire a room full of teachers or inspire students like you know nothing before so I I think the cost probably has impacts on some young people but that's why I think making sure that all young people get that excellent STEM education at school is so vital because then it opens doors for them to have a look at the kind of career opportunities and the, the various career paths that are open to them and select the one that works most for them. Fantastic. Just to just to wrap up, I'm going to ask each of our panelists to give us their. their sort of, if if you could ask the government for one thing to kind of help address the the skills gap, what would that thing be? Graham, perhaps we go to you first. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit of a uh, incentivisation type of chap. So uh, I think personally, government needs to help incentivise uh, businesses. It's not just about the cost of training; it's the time set aside for training and. Whilst upskilling and reskilling is really critical, we need to ensure that we allow, especially the smaller employers and the SME employers, that ability to be able to survive and manage and and actually do training in an effective, both cost-effective and time-effective manner. Yvonne, what's your one ask? I mean, for me, it's continue to invest in teachers, invest in their continuous professional development throughout their careers, not just training them initially and and the early careers investment that's going on is really important, but actually for science teachers, for, you know, for all STEM teachers, for example, help them access professional development that keeps them up to date with their subject, keeps them enthusiastic and keeps them highly and and very well informed about the possibilities to which those subjects can lead for their young people. Because at the end of the day, we all remember a great teacher and those teachers can go on and inspire many, many young people and many, many scientists and engineers and technologists of the future who will be in the vanguard of solving these issues. And finally, last word to Siobhan, what's your big ask? I mean, I would be asking government to work with employers, colleges, teachers, parents to really embed the desire for lifelong learning in young people, middle-aged people and older people, because we know that quite a few of us are going to have multiple jobs in our lifetimes. And exactly as Yvonne said, some of these jobs that we're thinking about today may may have completely dramatically changed. So that desire, that curiosity to learn and relearn, I think is, is really important. If I could have a part B, if I so may... I 
I think what government can also do is make sure that there is a pipeline of really interesting jobs and big scale projects in things like engineering. So, for example, with Hinkley Point C concluding in the not too distant future, let's make sure that we've got other big projects so those those people that are working there or want to work there can move smoothly over and we don't lose lose them abroad. And, and I think that is certainly something that government can achieve. Thank you very much to Yvonne Bailey and to our other panellists, Dr Graham Herries and Yvonne Baker. Thank you. This is all very interesting, but it's that time in the show when we get to hear what the government thinks about all this. Alex Burkhardt is the MP for Brentwood Monga, a former advisor to Theresa May, and since September, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Apprenticeships and Skills. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, John. So to kick us off, perhaps I could ask, in order to achieve this zero carbon future that we're, we're told we're heading towards, we're going to need a, a pretty big and skilled workforce. How can the government encourage greater interest in, in things like green apprenticeships? Well, you're absolutely right. And this is, this is a huge change and a really historic change. We are systematically setting about changing how we, um, we generate power in our country uh, and in the world at large. And and this sort of hasn't really been anything that anyone's done in history before, well, certainly not for sort of socially responsible reasons. And it it means that we're going to need to do so very many things differently. There will be new specifications, new standards, new skills, and obviously new training. And apprenticeships that you mentioned are, are really key to our vision for that because they uh, they help people step up, earn as they learn, move into new careers, acquire new skills. We've got a range of very interesting and exciting apprenticeship opportunities that are going to help people uh, build and maintain the, the next sort of wind turbines, uh, the nuclear power stations, the electric vehicles, work in the gigafactories, as well as in a range of construction specifications, digital and agriculture and so on. The Chancellor at the Spending Review last year put a lot of uh, extra money into um, into apprenticeships we're going to be at the end by three years time we're going to be spending 2.7 billion pounds and uh, we've got a whole series of programs to incentivize companies to take on apprenticeships particularly young apprentices and meet their their new and uh, evolving skills needs so sticking with apprenticeships historically there's there's been an issue with with all sorts of schemes being badged as apprenticeships and on some of them the training was was excellent uh, some of them frankly less so so what can the government do to ensure that it's the right sort of schemes that are that are accessing funding this is really important a few years ago uh, there was a review of apprenticeships because although the numbers had gone up there were question marks around quality and it was discovered that you know, there were a notable minority of people on apprenticeships who did not know that they were apprentices and that something had clearly gone wrong. Since we reformed the system in um, uh, around about 2018-19, uh, we're much more assured of the quality and value to employers. And we have, um, yeah, we have strict uh, regulation mechanisms in place to, to make sure people are doing what they say, uh, because we, yeah, we, we desperately want people to pick up new skills and develop new careers. Further education has, has long been the sort of uh, Cinderella of the education system. It's often been a bit ignored. Where do FE colleges fit in this picture? Well, I, I think that's right, but they are now going to the ball and that we've had a huge slug of extra cash for 16 to 19 education yeah, made at the end of last year. And we're also uh, developing with colleges and crucially with employers, the next generation of vocational qualifications, you know, key levels designed to be 
on a par with A-levels but for, for vocational training. These are a big two-year courses that uh, guarantee nine weeks of work placement. And because they're designed with employers, employers you know, oversee their, um, uh, their implementation, provide work placements. We're, we're confident that they are going to provide a decent pathway into employment for, for young people who take them. So it's, it's a very exciting time for FE. So what is the current strategy to attract students to jobs in green industries? One of the interesting things I've found since I started this job is that young people really don't need very much encouragement to want to work in, in green jobs and, um, and green industries. I mean, in some ways, young people have been driving the, uh, the impetus for net zero. So in a sense, they are, they are self-motivating. But what we're doing is providing the, uh, the options for them, either in technical qualifications or in apprenticeships or our, um, our great boot camps program for in, uh, in intensive, intensive training. And employers, as they look to meet the challenges of net zero, are looking out for their skills. So it's this sort of meeting of minds that is taking things forward. Uh, a few weeks ago now, the government announced nine new institutes of technology mm. and uh, a huge investment in skills and technical training. What, what potential do, do things like that have to help the country level up and deliver the skilled workforce that businesses need? And the institutes of technology, the IOTs that we're, we're pushing on at the moment, I think are really, are really exciting uh, in that these are going to be centres of excellence where people can learn their uh, higher technical skills that you know, that means that when you know you're building wind farms in uh, in the north sea you don't need to um, you know ship your workforce from other parts of the country or indeed other parts of the world you can home grow it and you can uh, share the prosperity of those infrastructure projects locally and that's you know it's true of the the major uh, nuclear sites we've uh, we've got going up it's true of the gigafactories it's true of a whole host of uh, next generation clean technologies i think by as i say by by helping people who are in those areas that have uh, perhaps been forgotten in the past get those um, those higher earning jobs you know, we're going to be able to help level up the country you mentioned leveling up that's that's very much the, the sort of slogan of the moment What's the strategy to help transition those towns that were formerly reliant on on heavy industry, particularly in in the fossil fuels, Mm. to um, help support them to develop new and green industry instead? So there there are some really significant projects that have have grown up in in those parts of the country you refer to in recent years. You'll remember the Prime Minister gave a very um, significant speech in uh, back in November 2020, where he, he set out uh, his plans for the economy and for the environment. And uh, since then, we've seen big investment in our offshore wind ports being constructed in the T- Humber region and Teesside, creating thousands of new jobs. We've seen uh, British Vault announcing its plans for huge gigaplant leveling up the Northeast. Again, thousands of jobs. Stellantis is putting, uh, I think, £100 million into the Ellesmere port plant in the Northwest. Um, you know, to build electric vans. And so, um, yeah, and, and there's also big commitment to help all industrial areas decarbonize. That's why the government's put forward a billion pounds of funding to support new investment in carbon capture, utilization, and storage. So you, you can see that there really are opportunities for marginalized regions to, to be at the forefront of this change.
uh, uh, for uh, you know, for new jobs and new talents, new expertise to grow up, uh, for them to become centres of excellence. Just to wrap up, perhaps you could tell us how vital do you think the perspectives of the younger generation are in helping to make sure that the UK reaches its 2050 net zero target? As we were discussing a moment ago, I mean, this is a highly motivated generation and they've provided a great deal of the inspiration for the sorts of changes that we are, we are seeing, which the government is, uh, is driving through. And you know, they have an enormous appetite for the new green skills that we're embedding in technical qualifications uh, and in apprenticeships. I've been, been absolutely delighted to see school children and college students involved in plans to decarbonize their own institutions. And also, you know, I hope that there are going to be a lot of, uh, for example, FE uh, further education students who are involved in uh, the retrofitting of their colleges to make sure that they're, um, they're going to contribute to net zero as well. But the students of, um, of today really want to be involved uh, in this work. Alex Burkhardt, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Engineering a Better World from the House Magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And do leave a rating review to help others find the show. Our recordist was Ritz Jarman. Production editing on Engineering a Better World was by James Miller and Nick Hilton for Podo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>